Hey everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. Uh, this is episode three. Uh, I'm joined by Storm's Matt Court this week. Storm's, how you doing? I'm doing well. Yourself? Oh, not bad. Um, uh, so basketball uh, is finally back in action. We had a week off. Um, the uh, let's start on the women's side. Uh, they got the number five seed and will face Belmont on Saturday. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, this team, I think, has a lot of potential. Some of it, some might say a lot of it unfulfilled during various parts of the regular season and, and certainly in the Pac-12 tournament. So the question is going to be, can they refocus and make a run in this tournament? And, they, you know, they've been given, I think, a, a reasonable seed, maybe even a higher seed than you might expect from where they finished in uh, finish the season, but I think they've got a chance here to do a little bit of damage in, in the tournament, especially if the team that we've seen show up from time to time that can be extremely dominant uh, in the paint. The question is, are they going to be able to get their outside shooting rolling a little bit better to sort of take some of the pressure off uh, the, the interior game where teams could sort of pack in a little bit and prevent uh, the inside players from being as effective. Yeah. Usually, you know, come tournament time, that's when, you know, it's often the reign of the bigs. Um, and I feel like Oregon's got two pretty good bigs in, in Prince and, and Sabley. Uh, but if they could get their, you know, the, their perimeter shooting, you know, back up to nominal, um, you know, it, it's, it's such a huge advantage, you know, like, if, you know, if you, you look at, you know, points per possession, you know, t- there's two teams that dominate the teams that are, you know, good in the paint and the teams that can, you know, drain it from three. And, you know, the thing that's been frustrating for me for, you know, much of the year is, uh, you know, on the women's side is they keep settling for mid range jumpers, which are, you know, pretty much the least valuable points per possession play. You can, you know, <laughs> you can try. And yet it's like, it's the only thing we're going to do. Um, or it's frequently what they settle for, you know, it, fe- it feels like, you know, when something's going wrong, that's what they, you know, kind of settle for, you know, it seems like they have an aggressive three point shooting plan. They have an aggressive, like attack the, 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 the basket plan to start out with, but I sort of feel like the, those sort of fade uh, by the end of the second quarter. Is that what you see too? Yeah, generally I think so. One, you know, one of the things that, that has happened is they've had a lot of games where, they just start off ice cold um, on their exterior shooting, and they they eventually figure out that, well, we're not getting any points off of this, so now we need to start trying to move the ball inside more. Where, um, you know, and it, so it's a sort of the, the question is always, do you use the, the successful inside game to open up the outside game, or do you use the outside game to open up a successful inside game? And that's kind of where they've struggled. They haven't really been able to choose to do it. They've tried to do it through outside shooting. And we get a lot of half, you know, first halves that are one for 12 or one for 13 from beyond the three-point arc. And at that point, the other team kind of realizes, okay, we don't have to really worry about a threat from out there. And so they can then try to shut down what you're trying to do inside. And, And you're right. The Ducks have at least two players 
who can really do a lot of damage inside if they can be given the opportunity. But you have to have somebody making shots to pull some of that defense's attention out of the paint. So the first game is against Belmont on Saturday. Um, I, I don't think we know the time yet. Uh, we do know the date will be Saturday. Um, I don't know what time. Oh, no, we do know the time. It's going to be 2.30 uh, Pacific time. Uh, they're in Knoxville. Um, uh, it'll be on ESPN, too. Great. Um, do you know anything, know anything about the Belmont Bruins? I don't know anything about them, um, so I'm not sure how helpful I can be, but I could find out. <laughs> well, I pulled up their net ranking. Their their net ranking is number 50, um, which, you know, ain't bad. It's about appropriate for the 12 seed. Um, Oregon is, if anything, slightly underseeded. Um, you know, they come in at number 12 uh, in the net ranking, which is usually associated with the four seed. Um, the... Uh, um, and the other thing is, is that, uh, um, you know, B- Belmont's record is actually pretty damn good. Like, you know, they're, they, they finished 22 and seven, which, you know, is, is better than a lot of teams that are ahead of them. Um, but sure. you know, they play in the OVC, which is, you know, not the, not the, you know, strongest conference in the world. And I think by the end of this tournament, we're going to see, you know, the PAC 12s, you know, I feel like the Pac-12 is probably, you know, the top of the number two conference in the country, even though if you look at, you know, at the way the seating plays out, the seating didn't seem to reflect that. Um, that might be a, a running theme. <laughs> you know, Pac-12 yeah. disrespect. Um, you know, there's a ton yeah, of it's teams. Really, I'm sure. Good. I was going to say, it's. I'm sure it's really hard to get this right because you, you have you don't have a, quite as much of a problem, I think, on the men's side. But on the women's side, you just don't have that many like like opponents to go by. You don't know, for example, uh, I don't think Belmont's played a Pac-12 team this year, so you don't have a sense of where would they fit in yeah. if they, if they were a, a regular Oregon opponent, where would they fit into the grand scheme of things? The other the main advantage I think they may have in this game is, of course, it's practically a home game. Um, they're all they're all based in Tennessee, so they're close mm-hmm. by where uh, the, they're part of the tournament initially anyway is going to be taking place. So there, it, there's a couple opportunities there for them to, you know, have a home court advantage if such a thing exists in, uh, in at a neutral site, which is this uh, this is allegedly supposed to be. Well, the, you know, you bring up a good point about women's basketball, just a, you know, tendency where, you know, I don't know where exactly the cutoff is, maybe, you know, top 15, top 20 teams, but there's a cliff, you know, like between the top X number of teams and everybody else. And if you're, you know, on the other side of that cliff, boy, it it becomes obvious when you're watching a basketball game Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the, so Belmont probably on the other side of that cliff. And it's probably a game where if Oregon isn't, you know, getting in their own way, you know, I'd expect a pretty comfortable win. Assuming that they do. So the next team up, they would have to play on the same weekend Monday, I believe uh, is Tennessee. Uh, that's sort of a horse of a different color. Um, the, the Oregon is ranked a little higher than them in the net rankings. Uh, uh, Oregon again is 12 and Tennessee is number 18. Um, Tennessee had a, uh, you know, uh, 
plays in the SEC, which is a decent conference for women's basketball. But, you know, they, they're definitely the highest, you know, ranked of all the SEC teams, which means they, you know, probably didn't uh, play against a lot of teams of a, you know, comparable caliber to them, other than, of course, South Carolina, which is the, you know, the the number one team overall. Um I still think it's a tough opponent and I still think they're on the other side of the cliff, you know, the, the, the good side of the cliff, if you know what I mean. Right. Um, you know, obviously it's a team with, you know, an incredible you know, legacy in women's basketball. Um, and, and while you, you know, first round upsets are uh, very rare um, in uh, women's basketball, the second, you know, the, the second game uh, is usually where you see a lot of fireworks, you, you know, a lot of wheat get separated from the chaff. Um, and, and frankly, I don't know if Oregon is wheat or chaff this year. <laughs> what do you think about a, a Well, we're going to we're gonna find out. Yeah, we're going to find out the answer to that question, I think, pretty quickly, because you can't, you're not going to avoid very good teams for very many rounds in either of the tournaments. So they're going to have to come in, in the, if they can get past Belmont, they're going to have to come into that second game at a higher level than they'll need, I think, for the first game. Because you're right about Tennessee. Uh, they're, you know, 23-8 and eight overall. They play in a reasonably difficult conference. Their SEC is not at like a super basketball conference like they are in football, but they've got some high quality teams in the men's and in the women's side of their conference. So coming up against the Volunteers, again, a game played in Tennessee against a Tennessee-based university, uh, you know, gives a, a little bit of leverage to the, to the Tennessee Volunteers in that game. You know, it's weird as I, I worry about that game a lot more than I worry if they get past it, you know, they would almost certainly be playing Louisville, uh, you know, which is one of the top teams, you know, in the country. Uh, I, is it weird for me to say, I actually worry about Tennessee a lot more than I worry about Louisville, like in the sense that like, if they beat Tennessee, then it's sort of a sigh of relief, like, oh, this is the good Oregon team that we were expecting all along, and they're on a roll, and this will be a damn good game against Louisville. Um, whereas maybe they're not that team, and they just get shut down by Tennessee. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it, in, in the tournament, you have to bring it every game, because everybody is. And you can't be the team that's great against... Uh, Tennessee or Belmont and then mails it in in the next round because each successive round usually unless there's some kind of massive upset is more and more difficult and so you don't what you don't want is to get especially from a fan perspective get some kind of overconfidence especially about this team which has shown a great ability to be fantastic and a great ability to be sort of mediocre uh, against their opponents as they've gone through the season. So you don't want to get hyped up about a win over a tough team like Tennessee and think, oh, well, now we're ready to play with the top teams in the country. Now, it doesn't mean they aren't, won't be ready or can't be ready. They could be. The question is going to be if they can find that way to play in every game in this tournament, which, you know, as we said, I think at the outset, that's what sets them up to make a run in this tournament is their ability to raise their game to the highest levels that it reached during the regular season. 
Yeah, I mean, we know when this team is clicking, it is one of the best teams in the country. You know, it's just been a question of consistency. And frankly, right. you know, I, uh, it stumps me. Uh, you know, maybe you've got a better idea than I do, although I sort of think your answer is going to be something similar. Why the hell in some games they, they're phoning it in and some games they look like world beaters? Like, I can't find any rhyme or reason to it. Do you have any theories? I don't really. It's... Um... I, I guess it's just human nature to some degree. Uh, it's, you know, it's sort of easy to sit back and say, boy, why aren't they blowing this team off the floor when not every game is a result of your own mailing it in or your, you know, your own not having enthusiasm to play. You're playing another team. That's true. And everybody's not going to roll over like, you know, I don't want to imply they did, but what that Washington State game I, I don't even think they were rolling over. I they, think they yeah, were they genuinely make, trying yeah. to sink those baskets. Yeah. They were just like, yeah, they, just they stuck their hands in liquid nitrogen before that game. Yeah, you know, like, yeah it was crazy. Uh, but but they were still, as you, I, I agree, they were trying. It's just that they had one of those days where there wasn't a single person on the roster that could make a basket. And then, uh, you know, in other games, on the, on the men's side, you had a, a game where everybody on the bench uh, hit a basket, including the guy, the senior guy that hasn't played 20 minutes all season that they brought in late, drains a three. Yeah, right. So it, you never know what you're going to run into. And the hope, of course, always is that yours is the team that ends up getting the hot hand during the tournament. Well, let's talk about the men. Uh, they received their uh, NIT invitation. Um, it was apparently somewhat dramatic. Um <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, it was surpri uh, actually surprising that there. Were, it's like so they went from being on the bubble for the NCAA tournament to being yeah. on the bubble for the NIT tournament yeah, in about like, a week you know, and a lose, half. Losing to Colorado, <laughs> yeah, lo losing to Washington. That's what it'll do. To, you yeah, know, I, exactly. to all my friends, I highly recommend never losing to Washington. No. Um, <laughs> it's you know generally a bad idea. Um, they. Uh, uh, Interestingly enough, even though they're the higher seeded team, uh, Oregon's net ranking, uh, the, the men's side is just terrible. It's down at 76. Um, I, I think that they are a better, you know, like we were talking about with women, I think they are a better team than that when they decide to play basketball. You know, as I think that, you know, when we talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, this is a team where if you only look at their wins, they're one of the best teams in the country. The problem is the losses are just like, oh my God. In fact, yeah, Slurms, wow. I, it was funny. I went back and listened to the, the first podcast that we recorded and like half of the things that we talked about, we nailed. Absolutely. We nailed Utah going on their run and the women's yeah. side, um, uh, you know, and, and a couple of things. But, the, you know, the other one that we, you know, well, assuming that Oregon just takes care of business against Washington and Wazoo, this should be yeah. fine. Right. And it's just like, oh, my God, guys. Whoops. Um, you know, that's sort of the I mean, that's the thing about Utah State, which, you know, look, Utah State's numbers, you know, six. 60 in the net rankings that is better than Oregon it's still not great you know this you know they're they're uh, you know I'll just put it this way I don't think the Utah State's a great team uh, I don't mm -hmm. think the Mountain West was a particularly good you know basketball conference this year uh and they had a losing record in conference um you, you know they're they're uh uh 
you know, this is a game in which Oregon ought to handle, you know, pretty easily. But we've said that about, you know, a lot of games that Oregon's men basketball has played this year and, you know, wind up looking, you know, stupid about it. Like, uh, I don't know, man, you worried about this game? Sure. Uh, I Because I don't have a sense of which Oregon team is going to show up. And, I, you know, I hate to use... Uh, the Beavers is an example of anything, but Oregon looked good in that game, particularly as the game went on. They dominated where they should have dominated against a you know pretty bad basketball team. The the question is, can they raise their just? It's just like the women. Can they? It's and it's a tournament. Can they raise the level of their game as everyone should be trying to do when they go into postseason play? If, if the good team shows up and can make some outside shots and can play the sort of tough defense that Dana Altman's teams have been known for, I think they have a chance to get through a few games in this tournament. I just, I have very little confidence or surety, I guess is a better word, that that's what's going to happen because they've shown repeatedly that they can be fantastic one game and do all the things you think they can and expect them to do. And then they'll come into the next game and it's just, they're flat. They just can't do anything. I don't know, for example, if Will Richardson is going to come back for, for the NIT. I haven't seen, they probably announced it. I haven't seen it. I haven't either. I've been looking for it. Yeah. You know, honestly, I'm not sure it matters. You know, I, 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 like, you know, given the way that Will Richardson was playing at the end of the season, like, yes, that was with, you know, the injury that he took, sure. but like, you know, I don't, I, you know, it, it, a Will Richardson who is probably only partially recovered from that injury versus Joe Young, like, I don't, I don't know, there's a big drop off there. You know what I mean? Like, right. No, I, I don't, I don't disagree. Uh, I, I think that Richardson was struggling even before he took the, head injury or whatever it is that held him out of the Pac-12 tournament and and turned in a couple of and, and caused him I should say to turn in a couple of pretty bad performances late in the season. So and, and the team as I said earlier the team looked great against Oregon State. I mean they had a couple of guys really go off uh Young and Gary with Richardson out and I think maybe perhaps in that Oregon State game the team as a whole realized hey wait a minute you know we're without this guy that was supposed to be our leader we need to do something about that now that didn't they had no follow-on for that in the Colorado game so they need to realize that with him or without him uh talking about Will Richardson there's other people that need to get their jobs accomplished and hopefully that's the thing that they've learned over the last several games is that they can't they, they, if they don't, whether they do or don't have Will Richardson, the rest of the team has got to do the things that they're supposed to be doing to win ball games. And I hope that what we'll see is a lot of a lot more tightness on defense and finding places to score buckets with the players that are in in, in the position to do that. And then assuming they get past Utah State, you know, they will probably face Texas A&M. I sort of feel about Texas A&M the same way that I feel about Tennessee on the women's side. You know, they uh, finished with a comparable net ranking to Oregon. Uh, you know, they play in a league which is good, you know, not great. 
Um, they did decently in that league, um, you know, didn't win it. Uh, the, it is a winnable game. In my opinion, if Oregon, uh, is playing its best basketball, it is an eminently losable game if they're phoning it in. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like a broken record here. You see anything any differently than I do? No, I don't really. It's it, one of the good, good things. If there is a good thing about being in the NIT, it's that you generally speaking, don't have like outst- an outstanding bunch of teams that, that you know are just much better than you are, that you really have to play your absolute best basketball to have any chance of hanging with them. In the case of Oregon's run through the NIT, which we hope is going to develop, they're not going to play a team like that. They're going to play a group of teams, each one of whom for them should be beatable with good performance. So I don't, I don't see any game Texas A&M or, or anybody else that Oregon's going to face where I'm going to be thinking, boy, they just, you know, it's been fun, but this is the end. They're not, there's no, yeah, exactly. There, there's no, you know, there's no Michigan or Kentucky or, you know, some team that's right. slumming it. Like if there's a team <laughs> that's slumming it in the NIT, uh, it's Oregon. You know, right. yeah. like, you know, there's, there's a couple, you know, I like, let's put some respect on Colorado. You know, I think Tad Boyle's good coast, you know, Oklahoma and Florida are in the tournament. I think that those are, you know, usually, you know, teams that are a little bit better than this year, but like, you know, of all the teams, you know, uh, that you could say are slumming it in the NIT, like really that's a future hall of fame coach who's coaching in this tournament, like Dana Altman's like, right. I, I would have to say like top of the list, like, yeah. which, you know, it's always hard to read. Like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean they should cruise to the championship because that's their due? Or does that mean they're going to go out in the first or second round? Because, right. you know, <laughs> they, you know, all the factors that led them to be in the tournament are still present and are going to cause them to, you know, to, to make a mess of things in the tournament. I guess we'll find out uh, when they play. Uh, it's uh, it it's happening right quick. Um, the, the, uh, they, they turn around on Tuesday at 6 PM. So it'll be the evening of the day that you're listening to this podcast. Um, it'll be played in, uh, 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 Logan, Utah, the home of Utah state university. Um, and, uh, our, you know, and, and then assuming that they get past that game, they'll turn around in the same week, play, uh, the winner of the, uh, Texas A&M versus, uh, Alcorn game. Uh, all right, let's take a break and we come back and talk about some Diamond Ducks. All right, you want to start with baseball or softball? You pick it. Uh, well, the baseball team uh, impressed me this week. Uh, the, uh, they took on Stanford, which is ranked number two um, uh, in the country, uh, and won the first two games. Uh, dropped the third one on kind of a frustrating game to watch, to be honest. Uh, but the, you know, the first two were, were damned impressive performances. Um, in the opening game on Friday, uh, it was you know, tied going into the, the ninth inning, 3-3. to three, uh, Oregon hits a home run uh, to, to go ahead. And, uh, and then the bottom of the inning, they close out the game on a double play. It was, you know, pretty damned exciting to watch. Um, then in the second game, you know, just when I thought it couldn't get any more exciting, uh, Oregon goes down, I think nine to three, uh, in the third inning, like it really looked like Stanford was going to walk away with the ball game. And then Oregon's bats just explode. Um, you know, they put in multiple, I think four plus run, you know, innings, uh, Stanford, you know, offensively explodes too, but just, 
you know, not not as much as the Ducks did. The Ducks win that game uh, 16-13, which is, again, like, I didn't know that baseball could produce scores like that. Like, this, you know, like this is kind of recalibrating my expectations as a baseball fan. Um, and it's not because I think that anybody's playing, like, terrible defense. It's just, like, these bats are live. Like, um uh, and then the final game on Sunday, uh, they, they put up a decent effort. They, you know, they scored six runs in the game, but, you know, Stanford was just outpacing them the whole game. You know, I believe they led the entire game. You know, they, they you know, played it a run in, you know, the first inning. Um, and, uh, just, you know, Oregon just couldn't outscore them in another, like, offensive, you know, offensively driven game. Is that, is that how you saw the series, too? Yeah, I was, uh, I was really impressed by Oregon's late game heroics, if you will, in, in both of the first two games, they trailed and could easily have lost those games and just made massive, um, either, uh, uh, massive rallies, um, not necessarily gigantic ones. The second game, they scored eight runs in the last two innings. Uh, to win that game 16-13. The first game, of course, they only scored two runs in the last two innings, but it was enough to push them uh, over the top by a run. And in the third game, they just ran into a a hot pitcher. Drew Dowd for Stanford really had uh, an outstanding game against Oregon's bats. And it was only after he was lifted from the game that Oregon started to uh, moved the ball around the park a little bit and ended up scoring uh, four runs in the last three innings. Again, once they got into the Stanford bullpen, they had a gigantic amount of success against them and were, were able to um, to score a lot of runs, frankly. And you're right about the, the 16 runs. That was really, and that we're back to that like explosion they had late in that San Diego series that we were talking about uh, two weeks ago. They, they really, when they get rolling, and this is one of the things that we said in our preview article for this series, is when Oregon's bats get rolling, they're hard to keep up with. You, you have to be able to really turn on uh, your offense as an opponent to keep up with them. Because or, that second game, Oregon just absolutely obliterated the pitching staff. Uh, that came in in relief in that game. And to give up eight runs in the last two innings uh, to a team, that's a lot of runs to score. I don't care oh, yeah. uh, who who you're, who's in your bullpen. Uh, Oregon just looked really impressive, I thought, late late in all three of these games, which is encouraging. They, so the, in the in the third game, which they ended up losing ten to six, they got off to a poor start. And if they you know they came up against a tough pitcher, they couldn't break him down. Uh, I think he pitched through the fifth inning. And they couldn't break them down. And but once they got into the bullpen, then they started hitting the ball. So uh, the key, you know, the key for Oregon is to going forward is there, I don't think there's a game they can't win if they can get to the starting pitching a little bit and get into people's bullpens because they've really shown an ability to hit a, to have a lot of hits and score a lot of runs against uh, relief pitchers. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, uh, Stanford, they had a four run second inning, which actually I missed. I I got up to get a drink or something and I, you know, it was like one to one and I, and I come back and it's five to one. I was like, what what the heck just happened? Um, I, I, I'm not, you know, to be honest, I I don't know. Actually, did you catch that one? Could you answer that question? Uh, What happened there? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's uh, so what happened in uh, let's see here in Stanford second, uh, Oregon gave up uh, a grand slam, I believe. Oh boy. Uh, in the second inning. I don't have the play-by-play up, but um, Barrera hit a, a grand slam yeah. homer, and that was, you know, I mean, that's all it takes, right? Right. Is uh, load the bases and then whack one out. Um, but that, so that's, you know, again, that's on the, the pitching staff, obviously, there, where... But, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, Oregon's, you know, Oregon had more hits than Stanford did, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, if you eliminate the first two innings of the ball, like you, you were saying that Oregon like was in this game and they were, you know, with the number two team in the country, a team they just beaten twice in their home park. Like, you know, the it, the third through the ninth inning, Oregon, you know, is scoring five runs that, you know, it's enough to win the game. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if you like, if you just wipe those first two innings off the board, you, you know, wipe off that grand slam and, and what Oregon produced in the first two innings as well. It's a, you know, it's a tie ball game, right? Like right. it's just, that's, you know, like that, it is a competitive game, except, you know, they gave up that explosion and Oregon didn't have, you know, a grand slam in them, you know, to, to, to level it. But it's not like, you know, they got blown out of this game or the offense wasn't productive. I mean, six runs is usually enough to win most baseball games, but at least most baseball games when I was growing up watching baseball, yeah. maybe things have changed. I don't know. No, absolutely. But, but yeah, Oregon had some a little bit of a problem with pitching in this particular game. They, they gave up a lot of bases on balls. And it, if you look at the sort of the, how this second inning went for Stanford, uh, you've got a walk, a walk, a wild pitch, a hit by pitch, another walk, and then a grand slam. So you don't have, so it's, the, the you know, pitchers, pull the pitcher, you know, like yeah, I don't not, care yeah, that exactly. it's the second. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm actually curious about your opinion on this matter. I feel like I'm a, 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 a radical on this question. I feel like, you know, the first time your pitcher being somebody, you ought to pull them. Like that's it. You've okay. lost control of your pitch. Um, Unless you've told them to do that. Right. Well, <laughs> that doesn't happen in baseball. What are you talking about? It's <laughs> exactly. a gentleman's game. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a real hard ass on, on, on the mound. I, I feel like you should have a full bullpen and at any given time, even in the second inning, you ought to, you know, pull your pitcher, you know, all right. What, what do you think about that question? Hey, you think I'm crazy? Oh, you know, it, on or for Oregon particularly, they've got a ton of live arms on the pitching staff. There's no reason to leave somebody in whose control is not good that day. You should actually be able to tell that, I would assume, in warmups or early on in when they arrive on the mound if they're going to be the starter. And the, the Oregon has plenty of guys that can go long relief. They've got plenty of guys who can go short relief and do very well. Uh, They showed that to a large degree in this series, that they can bring in different pitchers and get better results perhaps uh, than somebody who just doesn't quite have his stuff that day. And it happens. You have to be able, as a manager, you have to be able to recognize when that's happening and make the change quicker. Because... Well, the other thing was the end of the series, you know, like I understand yes. like managing your bullpen, you know, if you're playing a bunch of games in a row, but this was the end of it. Like they didn't have another game for five, you know, five days till Friday against yeah. Utah. 
uh you know i sort of feel like empty the bullpen man like i know uh well we can uh we can we can play armchair manager all day long but let's talk about the series that's coming up they got it's three games uh that they will be hosting uh in pk park against utah um starting on friday uh going through saturday and sunday um utah I, you know, it's a team that's it's 11-3 and 1. Interestingly, they had a tie against uh, Loyola Marymount. I think that game got rained out. Um, the uh, uh, the thing is, I, I feel like even though their record is pretty good, I, just going through their schedule, it doesn't really look like they challenge themselves, you know, that much. Um, I, I, I think maybe this team's record is a little bit of an illusion. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. You know, they're, they opened conference play against Washington. They... Um, uh, they went two and one. Um, uh, they lost the first game uh, in 10 innings that uh, won the second two. Um, I, I, I definitely don't see anywhere near as much of uh, offensive firepower as Oregon does. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, eight, nine, 10, but I, I ain't seen twenties, you know, I ain't seen sixteens. Um, I, I feel like Oregon probably has the advantage in this game. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. I think Oregon's, I think Oregon's offense is going to be tough for anybody to handle in this season. They really have live bats, uh, live arms in the bullpen and live bats at the plate are a good combination to have. I don't see much uh, from you. I, I just don't think that Utah is going to be able to keep up. It's, you know, not that they aren't, aren't a good team, but you look at, as you note, some of their scores, uh, you know, they scored two runs against Fresno state, and four runs against San Diego state, and three runs against San Diego state. That is not going to get you a win against these Oregon bats. Utah is going to have to figure out a way to do more like what Stanford had to do, which is score 10 runs or 12 runs in order to have a chance to beat Oregon. And I just don't I just don't think they've got the bats to make that happen. Uh, all right. Uh, so those uh, games, again, will be in PK Park uh, or on television on uh, Pac-12 networks. Uh, let's switch over to talk about uh, softball. Um, uh, interestingly enough, the softball team will also be playing against Utah, um, uh, except they will be in Salt Lake City. Um, but before we do that, let's uh, recap what they've done since the last time uh, we talked. Um, they, uh, they played three games uh, at home. Um, since they got back from North Carolina, uh, they won all three of them in very impressive fashion. Uh, although against teams, you know, from, you know, look not the power divisions um they uh they blanked portland state seven to zero um and then they uh, run ruled a uh, double header north dakota state um uh, uh both uh both games uh, 14 to one in the first game and then 10 to two in the second game um really you know uh, i was really impressed with the ducks performance they really looked like they were hitting on all cylinders um you know the, the bats were live or the, the fielding looked very crisp to me um i you know, I got no complaints. I think this team is ready for, for conference play and to really make a lot of noise. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. Those the, the three games they played here at home, although not necessarily against as tough a competition as their North Carolina trip, the scores look the same. Yeah. Where, you know, they're holding teams to one or two runs. They're hitting the ball all over the park. They're, the power game has come on them at, at exactly the right time and they've started to hit the ball out of the park on a regular basis against 
all kinds of pitching. Yeah, that was another thing that we uh, that we got wrong. We talked uh, a couple of weeks ago. Is you know we're saying oh, I'm kind of worried about the Oregon softball team's right. offense here. You know, there's no long ball going on. You know, what do they do? They go to Carolina and then they come back home and they're just hitting nothing but home runs all day long. It was great. It's like I, I hope yeah. they listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they must have. We, we tweaked them a little bit and they thought, oh no. <laughs> No, but they look great. I mean, I think the team is ready to, to uh, make some noise in the Pac-12 season. Uh, it, it, the pitching has been good. The fielding has been good. The hitting, I mean, there's very little to, to critique even on this team. And so they're, I think they've set themselves up well. They've, they've, the other thing I like about what they've done is they've played a, a – a challenging schedule. Some of their matchups have been against very good softball teams, especially that California trip that they made where they ended up losing to a couple of high quality softball teams, I think taught them something about themselves. Yeah. I like that they played those early in the season. Yeah. I I really like that they challenged themselves early. Yeah. And I think that's going to help them immeasurably. And it, it has, in fact, I mean, I think they went into that North Carolina trip following the California trip at a higher level of focus than they otherwise might have had if that California tournament had been against a bunch of teams that they could easily beat. So I think they've learned some things about themselves and, and gotten really focused and look, they really have looked fantastic uh, since that the second loss in that, uh, in that tournament. So they, they will be playing Utah uh, as well, um, but in Salt Lake City. Actually, um, Utah's uh, softball teams, their schedule is pretty interesting. They, too, you know, like challenged themselves and played all over the country. You know, they opened their season against number five, Oklahoma State. They uh, played two games against Duke uh, early on. They lost all three of those games. Um, and, you know, run down their schedule, and it's like, you know, they, they've been all over the map. Um, they, uh, they they lost against number one, Oklahoma, you know, as well. Like, they you know, they they don't have any wins to hang their hats on, but you know, they, they went out and played, you know, good teams. Um, They played a bunch of bad teams too, but you know, everybody does. Uh, They're 15 and eight, which is not a great record. Um, But like I said, you know, they, they played a lot of challenging teams. The other thing that's difficult about their schedule to, to assess about their schedule is that uh, they they're not done playing this week. In fact, they've got a doubleheader against Wisconsin and then a third game against Wisconsin on Wednesday. Um, meaning, you know, they'll be playing uh, Oregon, you know, to start their three game series on Friday on just two days, you know, rest. Um, I kind of think that's an advantage for Oregon, even though you know they're on a homestand. Um, in fact, they're on a long homestand. They play, let's see. Seven games in a row uh, in Salt Lake City, and then the eighth game is in Ogden, Utah, against Weber State, uh, which is practically their backyard. And then they play a ninth game again in Salt Lake City, you know, Utah Valley, before they go to Stanford. So they are home for a long stretch of time. Uh, I hope they're comfortable in the dorms. Um, uh, anyway, uh, what do you think about this uh, this series for Oregon? It's uh, yeah, and I one of the interesting things about softball that is not as true of baseball is that. The, the time between games for, from a pitching perspective is not really relevant. You'll, it's not uncommon to see softball pitchers throw a couple of games in a day, full complete games in a day yeah. uh, with no, you know, no yeah, the problem throwing to come back the next seems day. to be less, you know, destructive. Yeah. And yes. plus, yeah. you know, it's seven innings and not nine. 
Right. Yeah. There's no there's no uh, elbow involvement really, as there is obviously with baseball pitching, and and the shoulder rotation is uh, easier on the body than than the baseball throwing motion. So you know the fact that Utah is only going to have a couple of days between their last clash with Wisconsin and their first game with Oregon may or may not mean anything. Well, they don't have to travel, so that's a that matter, obviously right? that's very uh, very helpful. There's no uh, there's no downtime for from that. So I, I you know I I like the Ducks' chances here. As I said, I think they're on a roll. I think they're they've uh, they've started a hit on all cylinders on all all aspects of the game. It's fascinating to me that you can hold a nine game homestand in Utah in the middle of March. I would think it'd be like twenty five degrees there most days. But uh, well, the air is a little thinner, you know. There, it, it certainly is, yeah, at, at altitude up there. But uh, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to this series. I, I think uh, it's an opportunity for Oregon to get off to a great start on Pac-12 play and to kind of stake their claim that they're going to be one of the teams. Uh, they're going to be in the mix at the end, uh, with the hopes, obviously, of getting into that World Series. Uh, unfortunately, the series will not uh, be televised or streamed in any way. I, I actually personally reached out to Utah's athletic department to confirm that. Um, let's, hey, journalism, everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, it will only be on the radio. Um, you'll need to go to goducks.com to, to, to find out how. I believe that there is a way to get streaming radio if you're real diehard for it. But uh, I don't believe we're going to be providing coverage on the site. We're going to be doing uh, baseball and the basketball games. Uh, let's take a break and we get back. We'll get to the mailbag. All right. Let's dive into the mailbag. You excited, Storms? Absolutely. Their questions are always just fantastic and illuminating. Uh, let's see. We've got, uh, folks who are complaining about Mondays. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, let's see. Question yeah. one from should have been a duck. Are we going to land any of the five stars from this weekend? If so, which one do we need the most? Slurms, you got an opinion on this one? Well, I don't know which one we need the most. I am, as always, hopeful. I I think it's great that these really high-level players come to visit Oregon, at least. I think any time we can get one of these fantastic players on campus, it dramatically increases our chances of landing them uh, on the team. Because, let's face it, Oregon's facilities, its program, everything about the visit is impressive to these young men. And so the hope is that they'll like it so much and they'll understand what the culture is like and how valued they will be and how they will be more valued as a player and as a person if they come to Oregon than if they go to any other school in the country. Uh, I, I have a hard time picking, you know, which of the guys visiting this weekend I, um, uh, I'd want the most. Uh, you know, I think if I were, I think if I were forced to, I'd say Jaden Wayne simply because, uh, uh, you know, or Oregon, I think we all got uh, accustomed to, uh, cave on Thibodeau coming off the edge. Um, it, it's, uh, and I don't think Oregon has one of those. It's sort of like, you know, for, for, you know, everybody else, I think Oregon has a comparable, you know, talent and they can survive not getting that, you know, that guy in 2023. Um, really elite edge players, you know, do not grow on trees. You, you know, you get them once every couple of years if you're lucky. Uh, so, you know, I really like to see, you know, Jaden Wayne uh, 
do it. You know, and other than a quarterback, that's probably the closest you get to a, a tent bowl, you know, for your class. Um, you know, really elite, you know, potential first round um, or even first pick, you know, NFL guy in a couple of years, you know, is something that you can build, uh, build a class around. And with, you know, the defensive bona fides for this staff, um, you know, I, I feel like that, you know, that could really like tip off an avalanche, um, you know, who doesn't want to play for a national championship winning defense. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the other thing about sort of the evolution of Oregon over the years, I, you know, I've been an Oregon fan for a while. I remember games in which, you know, Oregon winning a game was a surprise. Um, And, and the second surprise has been, Hey, this team can actually play some defense. You know, like I, I, uh, I am not quite old enough to remember the gangrene teams in like 57. Um, But, uh, but like, it's been a while since Oregon's been able to hang its hat on defense. And, you know, I, I have now, that was the only question we have. So now I will just rant about the works that I uh, have been doing for the site. You know, I finished uh, writing up all my previews of the defensive staff. Um, I'm really impressed with the hires. Like, uh, you know, I, I think uh, when this staff was first assembled, there was a lot of I don't know, snickering from around the the conference and fan bases, you know, that were like, oh, look, it's the crew that can recruit and can't coach. Um, because, you know, a number of the names were either no name uh, or guys that not a lot of people had heard of or they had heard of them, but they had only heard of them as recruiters. Um, and on the defensive side of the ball, when I was digging in, um boy that ain't true like there's some there's some real pedigree and some real like interesting schematic stuff and there's a cohesion um to the defensive staff that dan lanning has assembled like i i you know this you know we we sort of flirted with the concept in 2019 with andy avalos's you know pretty good defense where you know in advanced statistics you know in the midseason they were you know ranked as a top five defense you know it's like what's it like to watch a team an oregon team in which the defense is better than the offense like so you know <laughs> it's like baffling experience for for even you know mid-range fans much less the long-range fans um I really strongly feel like that could be the case, you know, in, in 2022 and going forward, like this defensive staff, I really think is an excellent staff. I really think that assuming the linebackers get healthy again, um, you know, that was the big, you know, that, that, that was the big bottleneck, you know, last year, but it's one that can be remedied with, you know, bed rest, right? Like it's not, you need, it's not, Oh, you need to fix this in the transfer portal. You need to fix this, you know, by, uh, you know, in some other way that's very difficult to do, you know, quickly, you know, like, um, well, hell, I just finished doing a bunch of film study on Florida State where their uh, Achilles heel is their, you know, offensive line stinks. Well, that's a hole that y- y- takes you five years to get out of. Like mm-hmm. um, injured linebackers is not a hole that takes you five years to get out of. It That's a hole that takes you six weeks to get out of. Um, right. and, and we will see, you know, shortly coming up here in the spring game, you know, a bunch of five stars and, and high four stars, you know, who ought to be healthy again, you know, let's all uh, hope and pray. Um, and, and assuming that they are, and they have, you know, the roster that they returned from last year, plus healthy inside linebackers, plus this defensive coaching staff, which is, you know, uh, led by a national championship winning coach and with a cohesive staff of smart dudes who are real developers, like, yeah, this defense could really kick ass. Like, like a lot of ass um you know and 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 
and, and you know, honestly, uh, and then to get back to the question, like, uh, being able to put on that showcase uh, um, with some of these defensive recruits uh, and getting an elite, you know, edge rusher to build his tent pole for the class. Like, yeah, that could be really exciting. Um, and the other thing that I'll say about recruiting while we're on that topic is I, you know, I, I write previews of all the other Pac-12 teams, right? And one of the things that I do, that's one of these, you know, you don't know it until I publish these articles and, and maybe you don't know it even then, is that I'm following recruiting for the other 11 teams too. You know, I'm keeping notes on on how everybody's doing, how their recruiting weekends are going. And boy, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You know, if anybody from somebody who's not an Oregon or USC uh, fan base is listening to this, like winter is coming for the Pac-12. The separation of Oregon and USC from the rest of the Pac-12 is, I mean, it was already sort of present. It is accelerating. Like the, you know, uh, Washington is really falling off with recruiting. I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast is happy to hear that. Maybe a few, um, <laughs> but like it, they're, you know, those guys are celebrating getting low three stars, you know, um, it's, I, I, and I like that coaching staff. I had to do a bunch of film study on Fresno state. Um, it was, you know, kind of freaky the way that it worked out, you know, cause they were Oregon's opener. Um, right. So I went back and I watched all of their 2020 season. Uh, and then they played a week zero game against UConn uh, before they played Oregon. So I got to watch that. I watched the Oregon game, of course. And then, you know, they played UCLA before Oregon played UCLA. So that was one of the games that I did film study to get ready for for UCLA on. So, I, you know, I think that adds up to I watched nine or 10, you know, games on this exact coaching staff for Fresno State. Plus, it should be, say, a couple of Washington players who were on yeah. <laughs> Fresno State, you know, not just Jake Ainer, but Ty Jones um, and a couple of Oregon State players, too. And, you know, anyway, like. I like this coaching staff. In fact, I'm on record as saying, I think in three years, it's entirely possible that Washington fans will be more happy with this hire than USC fans will be with the Lincoln Riley hire. Um, wow. That's largely due to expectations at those two programs um, where I think that the dogs have had their nose rubbed in it a little bit and USC uh, fans are perpetually expecting national championships well, there's um, certainly a lot more room for improvement in seattle than there might be in los angeles definitely true um i definitely think that you'll see leaps and bounds of improvement versus the jimmy lake era with kaylin DeBoer. whereas i think the difference between um lincoln riley and clay helton will be will not be enormous um i think it will be real because i think that lincoln riley's a better coach than clay helton i mean it'd be hard not to be but like uh you know that they're they're close to their ceiling um and i think usc fans might need to you know reevaluate where exactly their ceiling is you know i know they won you know some national championships but it's you know if you look at the long history of usc they're not alabama you know they're they're right. not ohio state they're you know they're a blue blood but they're not one of the like the super blue bloods who like every single year are you know in for a national championship Pete carroll was the it was the exception not the rule at right. usc and if your expectation is Pete carroll every single season and you're firing coaches you know because they're not you know pulling you national championship three out of four years um you know it's entirely possible they get mad at lincoln riley fast um and I think there's, you know, some legitimate question about Lincoln Riley. That's another dude that I did like, you know, 13 games worth of film study on. I was sort of like, I've got questions about this guy. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, back to the recruiting, you know, side of things. Um, Washington was the third man in the room and they're sort of exiting that room. 
and Stanford was for a time the third guy in that room. They have sort of inherent limitations, and that team has fallen off the last couple of years. So, like, boy, that's what I, you know, would tell you from these recruiting weekends. That's a, a piece of a larger puzzle. And what that larger puzzle, you know, shows is that you've got a pack two and a pack ten. Right. And it's it's going to be interesting to see, you know, we've talked about this uh, on the site and, and the, the question for Oregon's incoming staff. First of all, I'm I'm fascinated with the idea that we have basically have a head coach who's defense first or who comes from the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since Oregon's had one of those. I think you might need to go back to the 40s. Yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, even uh Coach Cristobal was an offensive line guy or right. seen as an offensive line guy. And that's, this is what he's going to have this team of road graders and they're just going to, you know, uh, blow past teams because of the trenches. Uh, but I, my personal, and this is a personal view, is that Oregon has been deficient in defense for a long time. I was never um, an Aliotti fan. I, I don't understand a defense that allows receivers to just run free as long as they're not. As long as they don't beat you deep, we don't care how many twelve-yard passes they uh, they complete. We're just going to hope that they make a mistake between their thirty-yard line and our goal line. Um, I want three and outs, and so I'm I'm fascinated with the idea that Oregon is going to have a head coach that's from the defensive side of the ball, and I hope what he's going to do is be putting together a shutdown defense. And the fact that the recruiting is going well, and we've got this incredible weekend coming up with uh, so many outstanding players from, from all parts of the country, from all sides of the ball, uh, is, is great for, the, for Oregon. The question is going to be, just as it was with the previous staff, they can get high-quality recruits to sign, they can bring them onto campus, now can they make them into a great football team? And great football players and that's going to be the question for the staff we don't know yet uh whether or not this staff as the as it's been put together whether or not they will be great in-game coaches whether they'll be able to to spool up these players to make them better than they otherwise would have been whether they'll be able to make the kinds of quick decisions on the field that need to be made to adjust to what the defense is giving you or adjust to what uh, the, the other offense is giving you to take advantage of it. And so I, I, I have a tremendous amount of um, positivity and hopefulness about the football team. I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what they can do on the defensive side of the ball with that being the focus of the head coach. Well, it's really interesting. Like I have, I have been more of a defender of that, the style of defense that you were decrying the, the, I don't like using the term bend don't break because it's an overbroad term that sort of describes like four different kinds of defenses. And so I, I don't, I try to avoid confusion by avoiding that term. Um, but, you know, generally if, if you have to make a choice between, you know, let them have the short stuff, but take away the deep stuff, if that's philosophy A, and philosophy B is we're going to go all out to try to stop everything, but that is going to mean sometimes you hit a big play against us. Um, I would, if that's philosophy B, I prefer philosophy A to philosophy B. Um, I, you know, explosive plays like in the modern football game, explosive plays just hurt you way more. Um, it's just, if, you know, 
because sort of by definition, if you can score in one play, then it doesn't matter how good of a defense you play on every other play. Um, the, the, now that said, uh, there is no such thing as a national championship winning team. And I think Oregon has aspirations of being a national championship winning team. I was just sort of making fun of USC for expecting that, but you know, I feel like Oregon's expectations are, are reasonable here. <laughs> um, that, you know, they want to get there. They've been there twice in, in, in the last decade. Um, they're on the threshold. Uh, but anyway, if Oregon wants to win a national championship, there's no such thing as a national championship winning team. Other than like that one fluke in, in, lsu 2019 where like they had an offense that nobody could stop and they were you know the ncaa just said they're cheating so anyway uh (laughs) the the the, there's no such thing as a national championship winning defense that does both right like you know i i phrase that as if you've got to choose between one or the other that you should choose prevent explosive plays but the real answer is option c which is that you do both um Mm -hmm. and that if you you know if you have to make trade-offs you've already lost um or you've lost the natty anyway you might win a conference championship game that way but you you ain't gonna win a natty um because you know the team that you're gonna face and the offense that you're going to face in the natty is going to be a team that can kill you with both explosive plays or if you take those away is going to be able to kill you because they have the discipline to drive the field and not make a mistake that's how they got to the natty um so you need to be able to stop both and and you know you need an elite defense to do it and i think that dan lanning is an elite defensive coach um the other thing that i'll I'll say is that that definitely is the philosophy of the tight front and the mint front like they've sort of reevaluated modern football and say the pass can kill you more than the run and the whole philosophy of that front i'll go into this more um uh when uh, a little later in the off season when i'm doing my georgia preview it's sort of freaky that oregon is opening with georgia and also stole their coach so like yeah. <laughs> i it's weird but it also means i can do you know the same film as doing double duty for me so anyway um I-, I will detail this more in the future but i've already sort of previewed it when i was you know previewing the oregon defensive staff is that like the whole point of the tight front is to maximize your past defense um, and still stop the run with as few resources as possible. Um, and so Slurms, you may be frustrated because it is sort of a defense that if anything is going to be giving five yard up five yard runs, but it shouldn't be giving up 12 yard passes. So mm-hmm. it was a long way of saying, maybe you'll like this defense. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't, I don't mind the, you know, the choice A, as long as the mistake is made. I just yeah. don't like giving up all these passes for touchdowns anyway. Yeah, right. It's one it's one thing to make the trade off, but you gotta get your part of the trade in return, which is no touchdowns. Yep. All right, so we're coming up on the hour mark. I think it's time to shut her down for the week. Uh it's been great talking to you. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. It's a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, man. Go ducks. Go ducks.